So as I read from Exodus 15:22 to Exodus 17 and verse 7, were you able to pick up on the dominant theme? The grumbling of the Israelites. First, they come to Merah, and they grumble because the water is no good to drink. And then they grumble because they're hungry. And after the Lord provides miraculously for them, at Merah, and then with the quail, and then the manna, they come to Rephidim, and again they're like, oh, we're going to die. we got nothing to drink. So here they are, quarreling again, uh, grumbling again against the Lord, against His providence for them, mistrusting His leading and His care. I want to make just a few notes as we go through in terms of what actually happened, and then we'll begin our study of this grumbling here. First, I want you to notice that the solution to the undrinkable water at Merah, it's unclear whether the water was simply didn't taste good. Um, perhaps there was a high mineral content and it just was nasty tasting water. Or it was actually perhaps literally undrinkable and uh, perhaps deadly, if only the way that salt water is deadly, that you can't actually subsist of salt water. Uh, it's unclear. But in any case, the solution to it is that the Lord shows Moses a log in 1525, and Moses throws a log into the water, and then the water becomes drinkable. Well, some have tried, as they did with the parting of the Red Sea, to make this a natural phenomenon. And talk about how well the, the wood of the log has absorbent properties and so as they throw the log into the water, it absorbs some of the mineral content out of the water, and therefore the water. Look, we're in a supernatural narrative. The Lord just finished ten plagues. He just finished parting the Red Sea. We don't have to find a natural explanation for everything. If you reject supernaturalism, you've got uh, bigger problems than um, simply trying to explain this story. You've got bigger problems with the Bible. If you accept supernaturalism, it's not hard to just accept, for whatever reason, the Lord told Moses to throw a log in, and Moses did it, and the Lord healed the water. Then, the same thing with the bread of heaven, and we're going to spend a, a whole sermon talking about the manna, but the same thing. People start talking about how the manna was perhaps, believe it or not, the excrement of insects that lived in the desert that, that were able to eat and subsist of various vegetation in the desert and their excrement uh, fell down and tasted sweet. Well, first of all, that would be an awful lot of excrement to feed so many people for 40 years. Secondly, if people find that it tastes like wafers with honey, <laughs> I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, even if this stuff is edible, <laughs> it probably didn't taste like wafers with honey. So again, People just do somersaults to just get away from the fact that the Lord fed these people with bread from heaven. He miraculously provided for them as He miraculously healed the water at Merah. And then at Massa and Meribah, after the Lord parts the Red Sea, after the Lord heals the water at Merah, after the Lord provides bread from heaven, 
here are the people again, like, we're going to die. And the Lord uh, commands Moses to strike a rock, and the rock pours forth water. Well, good luck finding a uh, naturalistic explanation for sufficient quantities of water flowing out of a rock to feed the large multitude that left Egypt. This is, on the one hand, a story of, or a, a series of stories of grumbling and complaining, that that's the dominant scene. But the other side of the coin is actually the Lord's provision. That's just as dominant of a theme as the people's grumbling, isn't it? And when you realize that the people's grumbling and the Lord's provision are at once in equal proportion, the themes of this section, it becomes clear just how wicked their grumbling is. It's not as if the Lord is not provided for them. So let's study this a little bit more in detail. And the first thing I want to point out is that the people of Israel are looking at the past with rose-colored glasses. The people of Israel are looking at the past with rose-colored glasses. And the people of Israel said to them in verse 16, chapter 16 and verse 3, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In other words, it would have been better for us if the plagues had just wiped us out. In the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. (laughs) Well, all you have to do is just turn back a few chapters and see whether or not they were just having the time of their lives, just living their best life now in the land of Egypt, just sitting by the meat pots, eating bread to the full, just living in paradise. What does the text say? We flip back to the end of Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. These people clearly were looking at the past with rose-colored glasses. These were the people that were groaning under the mighty hand of Pharaoh and his mistreatment of them. Remember, there was the policy of male infanticide where they had to take their sons and throw them in the river. uh, They were severely mistreated such that they're crying out to God for deliverance. And here they are, God has delivered them, and they say, man, for the good old days, when we sat by the meat pots in Egypt and ate bread to the full, man, those were the days. They were looking at the past with rose-colored glasses. Now, the next thing that I want to point out is that they were looking at the future with woes-colored glasses. W-O-E-S. 
They were looking at the future with woes-colored glasses. Woe is me. Woe are we. What are we possibly going to do out here? Oh man, the good old days are over when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full and now woe are we out here in the desert. We're going to die. We're not, there's no way we're going to survive. We're not going to make it out here. What shall we drink, first of all, at Merah? And then in uh, chapter 16, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, woe to us. Woe to us. And uh, then over in chapter 17, again, give us water to drink. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? These people were looking at the past with rose-colored glasses, and they were looking at the future with woes-colored glasses. Both of these things result from a misapprehension of reality. They are not viewing their past accurately, nor are they viewing their future accurately. The reality was, as I said, that in their past, they were severely treated by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were essentially being uh, slowly but surely exterminated by this policy of male infanticide, where either one of two things would happen, Either the, uh, eventually there would be no more men coming up and therefore no uh, uh, couples getting together and having babies among the Israelites and all of the existing Israelites would die out. Or what would happen is Egyptian men would eventually start to impregnate the Israelite women and the Israelite nation would be wiped out um, by essentially breeding them out. But in any case, they were essentially being exterminated as a people by this policy of male infanticide. They were harshly treated such that they groaned and cried out to God. When Moses began to intervene, Pharaoh made things even worse and kept their quota the same, but told them now they have to go and gather the straw. And hence the famous... Um, uh, statement which has been co-opted more broadly in our culture of unreasonable expectations of making bricks without straw. This was the kind of treatment that they received in Egypt. It wasn't the good old days when they were just sitting around by meat pots and eating bread to the full. Yeah, perhaps they had a more varied diet in Egypt than they had out in the wilderness. I grant that. These people ate manna every day for 40 years. Sure, maybe they, they remembered the days when they had a little more culinary variety, but it was hardly the paradise. It was hardly the idealistic situation that they remember it to be. Secondly, they misperceive what is going to happen to them in the future. They're, God didn't bring them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness by hunger or by thirst. God didn't just as God didn't bring them out of Egypt in order for them to die at the hands of Pharaoh while they were pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. 
The Lord brought them out of Egypt, as we saw in Moses' song earlier in chapter 15, in order to plant them on his holy mountain. God who brought them out of Egypt is going to get them all the way into the promised land. God isn't going to start a job that he's not going to finish. God didn't redeem them in order to cause them to bypass all difficulties and all suffering and to instantly make their lives everything that they hoped it would be and more, granted. But neither did God bring them out of the land of Egypt in order to kill them at the hands of Pharaoh's army or kill them with hunger or kill them with thirst. He who brought them out will see them through. We see God dealing even with this grumbling people by means of gracious provision. In these three instances, what does the Lord do? He gives them water to drink when they grumble about it. He gives them food to eat when they grumble about it. And then He gives them water to drink when they grumble about it. Look at these grumbling people and look at this gracious God. Look at these people that do not persevere in faithfulness and trust to God, but look at this God who perseveres in faithfulness to this grumbling people. We see what shouldn't go together, going together in this passage. The grumbling of the people and the provision of God. If I said the provision of God is the dominant theme in these three chapters, would you, would you think, would it be intuitive to you that the grumbling of God's people is also a dominant theme? That doesn't make sense, does it? If God's provision is a dominant theme here, then why is grumbling a dominant theme here? And if grumbling is a dominant theme here, well then surely God's provision must not be a dominant theme, or why would the people be grumbling? And yet this is the way that it is. There is a God who cares about them, who brought them out of Egypt, who will see them through, and yet they are grumbling. Foolish people. Wicked people. Thank God we are not like them. Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> have you ever looked at your past with rose-colored glasses? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, back in the day, right? Back in the day, whether back in the day is like the 60s or the 70s or the 90s or the early 2000s or, right? Or even just a few years ago, before the Lord brought this providence into my life, before the Lord brought that providence into my life, right? Before I got sick with this, before I got that job, before I lost that job, before he came into my life, before she came into my life, back in the good old days, man, when I sat by meat pots and I ate bread to the full, right? You see how we, we have this same tendency to look back at our lives and we idealize and we're like, the Lord's providence is doing nothing but ruining my life. My life was fine before the Lord started bringing things into it that degraded it and downgraded it. If only the Lord hadn't brought this providence in or that providence in, right? And then we go 
not only looking at our past with rose-colored glasses, but we go looking at our future with woes-colored glasses. W-O-E-S. Woe is me. Back in the day, everything in my life was fine. Before this event transpired, before that person came in, before this happened with my job or my career or whatever, my marriage, my kids, whatever. Back in the day, I was fine. But now, woe is me. My life is so rough now. And there's no future for me. There's no hope for me. Everything has just come apart or everything is coming apart and I can just see it now unraveling. I can just see it now. This isn't going to end well. Woe is me. This is, this is a dynamic not only of their hearts, but this is a dynamic of our hearts. Not just looking at our past with rose-colored glasses, but also looking at our future with rose-colored glasses. And as it was for them, so it is with us. It's a misapprehension of reality. The reality is that our lives have never really been ideal. We might have been naive, sure. There's a naivety, for example, about childhood, um, especially if you grow up in a reasonably healthy home. There is a naivety about childhood where at times you feel, you might feel like everything's right in the world. Sitting outside on a hot day, you know, and, and uh, you got some juice. You know, the, that cool breeze is blowing. You know, mom and dad are right there. Got a chance to just go ride bikes after this. There is a certain naivety and simplicity to childhood. At least at times. But we know full well as grown-ups. Life is never ideal. And there are things... even in the lives of our children, even in their character, which are not right, which are not ideal, which are not perfect. They might be blissfully oblivious to these things, but we know that their lives really are never ideal. And frankly, lest we paint too rosy a picture of childhood, there are times when children complain, right? Yeah, sometimes maybe they just feel like life is just all bliss. But there are times when, yeah, that nice breeze is blowing. There's not a care in the world and, and, you know, they have a chance to go ride bikes. But the, the audacity. Mom put pineapple juice in my cup when I wanted apple juice in my cup. Right? And, the, and so there's that grumbling present even in the lives of kids. Right? So life is never really absolutely ideal, is it? So when we start looking back and thinking it's perfect, it was perfect then before this happened, before that happened, we're actually not apprehending um, reality properly. We're actually not recollecting properly all of the facts of the situation. What does the scripture tell us? It tells us that we were born guilty and corrupt. In Adam. And this is actually our biggest problem. Whatever the circumstances of our lives might be, the fact that we are born guilty and corrupt in Adam 
that we have a sin problem that renders us guilty and therefore liable to God's judgment, but it also renders us corrupt. This is our biggest problem. And even the most oblivious kid that's just a happy-go-lucky, contented kid still has this sin problem that he has to deal with. We all do, as humans. Now, for the Christian, our sin problem has been dealt with. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw even this morning, laid down His life for us and took it up again after the job was complete of saving us from our sins. He took the punishment that we were liable to so that we wouldn't have to suffer it in ourselves. And He broke the power of sin over us so that we don't have to live in sin anymore. He gave us new hearts to love Him and trust Him and worship Him and walk with Him. And so that problem has actually been dealt with. So we definitely, as Christians, we definitely don't want to go back before that moment when at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. We definitely don't want to go back before that. No matter how ideal it looks through our rose-colored glasses. Praise God, by His grace, we've been brought out of Egypt, so to speak. And Egypt wasn't as great as we might kind of remember it to be or recollect it to be now. We should be glad we're out. That I have seen the light and the burden of my heart has rolled away. We've been brought out of Egypt. And now, Christian, the same God who brought you out is still leading you is still taking care of you. So when you start looking at your future with woe's colored glasses, woe is me, oh, woe to me, it's coming apart, you're also misapprehending reality. Because the reality is that the same God who brought you out, who caused the burden of your heart to be rolled away, that same God who brought you out of Egypt will plant you on His holy mountain, as it says earlier in Exodus 15. God's intention, Christian, is to dwell with you forever. And God is going to make sure that you get there. And so, everything is ultimately going to be okay for you. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to immediately, instantly transform all the circumstances in your life so that they become exactly what you would want them to be right away, in a flash. In fact, God may lead you on some hard roads on purpose. Like God told the Israelites, look, go back and camp there by the sea. Because I want Pharaoh to come out and chase you so that I can get glory. So that I can make my power known to you so that you can begin to learn to trust me more. Right? And then they cross over. Okay, now go set up camp over by that place where the water's no good. Now go out there in the wilderness where there's no food. Now go over to this area where there's no water to drink and nothing around but rocks. God may lead you, as He led these Israelites, intentionally into hard places 
But God's intention is to provide for you in those hard places. To take care of you in those hard places. So that you will learn to trust in Him. And depend on Him. And to believe His care for you. As you see Him come through more and more. So that you will become more and more a person of faith. You see, God had brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But now God has to take Egypt out of the Israelites. God has to take the unbelief, the paganism, the disbelief in Yahweh that was latent among the Egyptians and is latent still among this people. God has to take that out of them. And so he's putting them in situations where their unbelief is manifested. He's making himself known to them in order that they might see that he can be trusted that he can be counted upon. And at the same time, as he's glorifying himself, he's doing them good by making them more and more into a trusting people. This is what God is doing also, Christian, in your life. The same God who has brought you out of Egypt will see to it that you get to the promised land. He will see to it that you're planted on this holy mountain. That when the events of Revelation 21 transpire, and behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, God will see to it, Christian, that you are there. And that his dwelling place is not only with man generally, but with you. God will see to that. But between Egypt and God's holy mountain, you got to pass through America. And you got to pass through the desert, which ironically, but uh, uh, it seems to be coincidental, is called the desert of sin. And it's not actually referring to sin as moral transgression, it's just that was just the name of it. Like if a guy came to us from another country and said, what's your name? He said, sin. It doesn't mean that his name is literally, he's named after sin, it's just whatever, that's just the word. But it is... It is funny that the desert of sin is where the people grumble against the Lord. Between Egypt and God's holy mountain, you've got to pass through Merah. You've got to pass through the desert of sin. You've got to pass through Massa and Meribah. And as we'll see, you're going to have fights. You're going to have battles. You're going to have wars along the way too. But God will see to it that you get all the way from Egypt, all the way to His holy mountain. And he's going to take care of you the whole way. There are going to be times when he tests your faith. There's going to be times when he makes things difficult for you. This is a far cry from saying God's going to make your path easy. It's just saying God's going, God didn't bring you out into the wilderness to kill you. That's all I'm saying. God didn't bring you in the wilderness to die at the hand of Pharaoh. God didn't bring you into the wilderness to die of thirst or to die of hunger. Don't look at your future through woes-colored glasses. God's going to get you all the way to His holy mountain. It might be rough, but look at how He has led you thus far. And trust 
that as grace has brought you safe thus far, grace will lead you home. Trust that all the way my Savior leads me. Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? If we look at His past actions, that should help us to see that there's a, at least a high probability that He's going to take care of us in the future. But when we look at His promises, that becomes ironclad. In Philippians, we read that Paul saying to the Philippian church, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Christian, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Just as we might be inclined to talk to the Israelites, if we could get in a time machine and travel back and talk to one of them, what are you thinking? Look at who God is. Look at who he's demonstrated himself to be. Look at who he's proved himself to be. Look at his past actions. That should give you confidence about his future actions. After you pass through the Red Sea, why would you grumble about water at Merah? After he provides water at Merah, why would you grumble about food in the desert? After he provides that, why would you grumble about water at Massa and Meribah? And then think of his promises. God has promised that He has brought you out in order to plant you on His holy mountain. He's going to bring you into the land that He promised to your forefather Abraham. He's going to bring you there and plant you there. Why would you not trust Him? Why would you not walk with Him even when you can't see the way through? Even when it looks hard, why wouldn't you trust Him? This is what we would do, isn't it? If we could go back in a time machine, what's wrong with you guys? Right? I've been joking with my wife lately that sometimes I need guy has therapy. Give your head a shake. Give your head a shake, guys. You're not living in reality. Why would you be grumbling about God in view of who He is and what He's done and what He's promised to do? You need some guy has therapy. But look, we would be tempted to speak like that to them, but we are very often doing the same things, looking at our past with rose-colored glasses, looking at our future with rose-colored glasses, misapprehending reality on both sides. Sometimes we need this guy has therapy to wake, wake us up, shake, shake yourself out of this. You're not living in reality. Get back to reality. Who God is who he's proven himself to be, who he's demonstrated him to be, how he's acted in the past, how the promises that he's made. Live your life in view of those things instead of living in this false world that you've created for yourself in which you're thinking wrong about your past, you're thinking wrong about your present, you're thinking wrong about your future. Give your head a shake. Look at who God really is who He's proven Himself to be, what He's done, what He's promised to do. The God who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt will be sure to see them through every difficulty on their way to His holy mountain where He will plant them. And Christian, the God who has pardoned you for your sins, justified you, 
clothed you in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, rendered you guiltless in His eyes because of the work of Christ, His substitutionary death on the cross, His perfect blameless life applied to your account. The same God who justified you will see to it that one day you share in His glory and you yourself are perfected of all your remaining corruption. And between here and there is this journey of sanctification. And it gets hard and it's intentionally hard because having brought you up out of Egypt, now God has to bring Egypt up out of you. Trust Him in the middle. Trust Him in the middle of that journey. All the way, your Savior leads you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.